Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Ian, Ian Tyrrell. Excuse me. Ian is the author of American Exceptionalism, A New History of an Old Idea from University of Chicago Press. Ian, welcome. Uh, if you would start us off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what it is that brought you to this particular book. Thank you, Stephen. It's very good to be with you. Um, I I am an Australian-born and bred historian of the United States. I lived in the United States for a total of about six years, and I do think I know the country reasonably well. Um, I became interested in American history at a very early age. Um, The United States has been a big influence on Australia since the Second World War, so growing up in the 1950s, I watched quite a few American movies, including the sort of Davy Crockett type movies. So I was fascinated by American history um, from a very early age. Um, and when I went um, on to become a historian, I decided to specialize in American history. And I think it was because, obviously, of the, the great importance of the United States in the world. And that was what I wanted to find out about. And I wanted to find out about what was going on in America in the 1960s, although my own graduate work didn't start until 1970. Um, since that time, um, I've, you know, specialized in quite a lot of different things, um, moving on from the history of social movements, uh, onto at first and then onto other things. But whenever I embarked on a new research project, I found myself coming back to the question of what was different about the United States and, and was it exceptional? Uh, by, by the 1980s, uh, these thoughts began to clarify in my mind. In 1991, I wrote an article on this this topic uh, in the American Historical Review. I turned back to my specialized research interests, uh, but I kept finding American exceptionalism popping up. So when I finally retired in 2012, I just decided to devote the next few years to looking at that topic. And that what that's what brings me to American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism was becoming a topic of considerable discussion in the United States, which actually it had not been when I wrote my first article in 1991. It was something well known to uh, historians and political scientists. Uh, uh, Personally, I read and was influenced by Seymour Martin Lipset, for example, who pioneered in the academic world the use of this concept and uh, this this, uh, name for it. When Barack Obama was elected, he made a speech on American exceptionalism, or American exceptionalism came up in the speech, and he appeared to contradict the doctrine of American exceptionalism. Um, a closer examination of the speech suggests that wasn't the case. But anyway, the Republican Party took this up and they began to talk about Obama as an enemy of American exceptionalism. And they eventually made this an important part of the campaign to unseat him at the 2012 presidential election. In fact, the topic American exceptionalism became a whole chapter in the Republican Party platform. So. The idea of exceptionalism went from a purely or largely academic idea to one which had a broader resonance, at least, uh, you know, in the community of uh, readers and uh, 
you know, viewers on television and, and, and the internet. So I, I, it was about that time that I started to get really interested in writing a book about it. And, and, I, and that's when I discovered that I really actually didn't know a lot about it. I needed to do a lot more research. I managed to get an Australian Research Council grant, which helped um, with some research assistance. And I, I just went on, on with it for there. And I was uh, you know, amazed by what I discovered. Some of the things were very well known, but a lot of them weren't. And that, that was how I came to the topic. So, so recognizing, of course, that, that American exceptionalism is literally the topic of the entire book, for folks who may not be familiar with the notion, if you will just tell us in, in very brief terms what it is that, that most people tend to mean by American exceptionalism, and then we can look at the way in which it has been understood and deployed in a few key moments throughout U.S. history. So what are we talking about here when we talk about American exceptionalism? Mm -hmm. We are talking about the idea that the United States is actually a, a unique country with um, a history which is unique and which is uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the minds of most people who talk about this idea, um, you know, superior uh, in its, uh, you know, approach to things than, than other countries. The United States can certainly make mistakes, but those mistakes are all seen within this pattern of the United States having this sort of special role in history. And, th and that idea really goes back to a, a religious one, a re an idea of the United States as a chosen country or a chosen nation that, that appears at various times in American history, particularly in the early days, in the, particularly it goes back to the, the Puritan uh, period and the uh, concept of the city on a hill that John Winthrop uh, used in 1630 in Massachusetts. And... But but just more generally suffused through the population by the by the by the 19, by the eighteen thirties eighteen forties, so that it was it was that was sort of the original idea. Now over time, the idea that the United States has been chosen by God hasn't be is no longer you know heard so much. But in fact, it is still a prominent idea within the broader kind of spectrum of ideas about American exceptionalism, and even people who perhaps don't believe in God or, or just certainly don't think that God, you know, directs the United States in a certain way through providence. These people um, still think that their nation is somehow chosen. And this is a very difficult concept to deal with because it's, it's essentially impossible to disprove. It's an assertion. It's a belief. And I began to realize that American exceptionalism was fundamentally about belief, it was about the belief in a country, uh, not so much in the facts about that country. Long before the era of fake news, I think this was true. Um, no matter what you do to show that there are you know, similarities to other countries, it's very difficult to shake the concept of the United States as, as exceptional in the way that I've, I've mentioned. Now, there is another entirely different or apparently entirely different approach to the topic, and that is to say, well, let's look at all of the different characteristics that there are about American society or American politics, and let's compare them to other countries. And comparison is a great thing to do because it, is, it does show a broader worldview. And how, do, how does the United States stack up against this? Now, in, uh, this is particularly prominent in the social sciences in the post-World War II period, and 
the idea was to try to try to look at these differences or similarities with other countries and see what they added up to. And um, almost invariably, they seemed to add up to the idea that the United States was radically different. But it was a, a, a political sociologist named Seymour Martin Lipset who began to use the term American exceptionalism to, to describe this phenomenon of the United States being radically different and um, sort of off the plane of other, of, of other countries. Now, Lipset was a very prominent person. He was, uh, he's, uh, was the president of the American Sociological Association and the American Political Science Association, and he taught at many of the best universities in the country, such as Harvard and um, uh, Columbia, Stanford, and so on. So he, uh, University of California, Berkeley, um, so he was, he, he was very, very prominent in this, in this idea, and he went on researching it for, for many years on and off. A bit like me, though, in the sense that he kept coming back to it while he was doing other things. Um, now, so his idea was that you looked at these differences between the United States and selected other countries, and then saw just how different the United States was overall from these other countries. But the difficulty is actually leaping from the particularities of, of certain things. It might be, for example, um, the voting system, for example, to uh, um, per, perhaps um, uh, well, similar kinds of things. And um, leaping from that to a generalized idea that the nation is exceptional is, is a virtually impossible one to actually carry out as a social science project. But it didn't stop people from trying, and it did spread the idea that the United States was different. So when we look around, we can see many, many things about the United States that are different. We saw in the COVID uh, uh, issue, for example, that the United States seemed to have uh, you know, a, a, a more um, in, inadequate response to COVID than, than some other countries. But it also had a more adequate response than in many other countries. So you could see it as being exceptional because of what it did do on COVID or what it didn't do on COVID. Now, when you start to get into that realm, uh, you realize that you're not really, you're not really dealing with uh, a, a, you know, a strong and rigorous pattern of, of social science observation. You really, in order to establish that the United States is exceptional in an empirical sense, you need to look at a series of characteristics and compare them to all other countries. And that is a very difficult thing to do. So generally, it doesn't work out. that it's, It can't be proven that it's exceptional. What it can be proven easily from observation is that the United States is, you know, got, for, for example, the, uh, the largest military in the world. Uh, there's no doubt about that. That it has it has it has enormous military power. Its military spending is far greater than the next uh, uh, you know dozen or so countries, I think. So it's 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 um, it's different in that way. Um, but does that mean exceptional? Because what what is the actual characteristic underlying this military spending that you need to look at? Is that is that this sense of it being chosen, for example? Is it a sense of its uh, commitment to democracy? What is it that you're looking at? So uh, Lipset actually had a lot of trouble coming to, an, to a kind of clear uh, point on that. I think that's so what there's, I would there's a there's, there's, there's obviously, and you, you point to this at some great length in the book, right? There's a, there's a real tension between this sort of Lipsetian effort to uh, uh, quantify the the distinctiveness of the United States, the ways in which it does and does not differ from other nations, and particularly other 
democracy, rich democracies. But that's that's hard to reconcile, right, with that that with Winthropian ideal, right, the city upon the hill, the distinctly uh, moral vision. Um, I wonder if we could bounce back to some of that history, because I think one of the things that struck me as interesting is, is you you suggest that in that pre-revolutionary period, this notion of expe- exceptionalism, largely religiously rooted, is about our moral distinctiveness and our, our virtue. But by the time we are in the midst of, of the revolutionary period and the constitution building period immediately after, we are also now adopting this in order to think of ourselves as politically distinctive as well, that somehow we've also latched onto political virtues that that haven't been discovered. Can you talk a little bit about what you see going on in that period? And then I want to jump forward and talk a little bit about about anti-exceptionalism ideas, maybe in the the Civil War period. But talk to us a little about the revolutionary era and the political distinctiveness and where that comes from. Well, the the, the idea of the revolution from Britain was was a you know enormous break and it was a really important point in world history. I think the thing to think about is whether it was part of a chain of events, is it situated in something broader, or is it something that is kind of outside of that, outside of that movement? Now, American exceptionalists tend to think of the revolution as unique um, and to, to kind of uh, isolate it from events of world history, except to say that, of course, it provided an example to the rest of the world. But there were many, many other things going on around that time, which, which underlay what happened in the United States. And, you know, from an empirical point of view, the United States was still, uh, you know, in 1789, a relatively unimportant country. And um, it, it didn't have the kind of, uh, you know, hefty influence, for example, that France had. And the French Revolution, I would argue at the time, had a, had a bigger influence uh, you know, internationally, although later on, of course, the United States has vastly surpassed that. But the idea of American exceptionalism is that the United States was unique from the beginning, so it's, but it's a question, not that it was became unique later on, but it was it was it was exceptional from the beginning, and that and there's a difference there between the what I think was the more common idea at the time was was the revolution and the the ideas of republicanism, and uh, uh, and so on, and, and to some extent a little bit later on democracy, they were at the foundation of what constituted American exceptionalism. But on the other hand, there was that religious idea, and the two tended to blend in during the revolutionary period. Many of the people who were supporters of the revolution really wanted to have religious freedom. And I think the concept of religious freedom, separation of church and state, etc., was so foundational to American exceptionalism at the time, because it seemed to be different from Europe. In Europe, <coughs> excuse me, in, in Europe, um, the, the established church, which basically meant the Catholic Church in most cases had a considerable power, although that was that was you know greatly, greatly damaged by the French Revolution. Um, so, so um, the United States just appeared to be a beacon to the rest of the world that religious freedom was the way to go. And many people who supported American exceptionalism saw exceptionalism as a way to achieve their goals of you know spreading their religious doctrines and just practicing their faith. It became an enormous anchoring point for American exceptionalism. Um, but it, it, it's been misinterpreted, though, by more recent uh, generations. The idea of the city on a hill was uh, the concept that's often used to describe all of this. But 
the city on a hill idea as historians uh you know before my before i i wrote have established was a very um was didn't have the significance at the time as a as a, a document that it subsequently has had it's a, a document which has been drawn into politics since the reagan era to to kind of nail on the masthead what american exceptionalism actually stood for but it didn't have the prominence before that but the more generalized idea of a chosen nation was one which was widely accepted even by people who weren't religious they would say that the united states was a chosen country somehow it was chosen but the position of uh, of, of providence or religion if you like role of god within this differed you know from one person to another from being a direct intervention to being just something which was in the background. And even even today, there are people who treat the U.S. Constitution as if it were a religious document, right? As if it were this, this, this immaculate thing handed down from God creating this, this brilliant, perfect architecture for a political system. Yeah, I know um, that. The, the, Which, uh, as a political scientist, I can tell you it's rather absurd when you see its actual machinations. It is absurd when you see the machinations. <laughs> and historians have drawn attention to this, but the idea of it as a sacred document has been uh, you know, propagated by many people, and it's found a lot in the uh, kind of the, uh, the architecture, if you like, of civil religion in the the, you know, the, the very fact that the Declaration of Independence was you know, in a glass case down at... Uh, the uh, National Archives, for example, one I don't know whether it's still there, but it, it, I think uh, so. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know, it's a sort of venerable document in the way that other people might take sacred scripture. So, um, you know, political scientists and others did, and you know, did write about this this idea of a, of a, of a civil religion. The United States adopted a civil religion rather than an actual uh, Christian, uh, actual actual Christianity, although obviously Christianity was what was what they meant was behind, mostly meant was what was behind it. Um, we know that we know that, uh, you know, uh, the, the position in the uh, in the uh, Constitution and in, in the in the amendments, the, the first 10 amendments was one of uh, independence between church and state. It wasn't meant to, uh, you know, to try to turn people away from religion, but to just give freedom uh, to choose. And you know, these ideas of freedom of religion and freedom more generally are ones that Americans have, you know, have grown up with and it's been inculcated in them. It's inculcated in them in schools. It's seen, it was seen in the 19th century all around them in the 4th of July celebrations where there would be long orations about this in, in the, in the uh, pulpits, uh, addresses, and sermons, particularly by Protestant clergy, uh, and and so on and so forth, those sorts of things. And then, you know, even more, more recently, it's sort of it's kind of uh, been enshrined in the environment through all the monuments that kind of uh, are, are, are raised around the, to venerate the, the founding fathers and, you know, just how exceptional they were. So this, this, this takes, I think, sort of fascinating form uh, in in what you refer to as as sort of early instances of anti-exceptionalism, I'm thinking of your writing about uh, anti-slavery Jeremiads. Um, can you talk a little bit about how does that fit into the way in which this idea plays out? Well, the idea of the Jeremiah is that is that the, the people have forsaken God, and it was it was a Puritan idea. Um, so. Um, the people of New England in particular and the Protestant churches more generally thereafter, were, were, they were aware of this, this concept. And it certainly was a, 
a very uh, powerful concept because it, it, it pointed the finger at, at people and particularly at the people. The people as a whole were failing God for various reasons. And as far as the abolitionists were concerned, for a lot of them, uh, it was because of slavery that they were, they were failing God. So this led to the excoriation of slavery and of Christians who supported slavery, um, of which, of course, there were many. Um, so um, the idea of the Jeremiah was a really powerful critique of American exceptionalism in a way, but it was also within the exceptionalist tradition because the Jeremiah had always said that if that you could come back to God and you could you could repent of your sins and you could sort of take up the American cause of democracy and freedom and liberty where you'd left off if you just got rid of of these uh, sins, the sins in particular at that time were centered around the issue of slavery in the uh, first half of the 19th century through to, through to 1865. Um, so there are lots of critiques of slavery and, um, and many of these, but by no means all of them, did come from uh, this position of the Jeremiah. Now, when Sek van Berkovich, the, American, the, Harvard, uh, the late Harvard um, literary uh, scholar, uh, you know, popularized this idea of the American Jeremiah. He did say, and it was only in a footnote, that there must come a point when, when the people are so sinful that, that, they, that the Jeremiah no longer operates to return people to American exceptionalism. Um, and, but he, of course, was unable to say what that point would be. Just where is it that Americans have diver, you know, kind of diverged so much from their founding ideals that they can't, that they can no longer have a hope of exceptionalism, and he, he thought that there, 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 there had to be that possibility. And some anti-slavery people did take that course, and and others who weren't of, uh, you know, strongly evangelical Christian background did too. The United States had simply gone beyond the pale. That that obviously tended to be a minority tradition, but that that was part of the anti-exceptionalism of the of of the anti-slavery movement, I would argue. What, what strikes me as particularly interesting in this moment, thinking back upon that period, is because as is the way that 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 you talk about how people understood that moment that it was right that slavery was the aberration that we had strayed from the path we had moved away from from the 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 noble vision that God had ordained for the nation we had sinned we had moved away but we could return back to our uh, status by returning back to our course and of course there's lots of people today who would argue that well no that's exactly wrong slavery was in fact the essence of what it meant to be an American and as many people have talked about it right our original sin that many would argue today we have still not resolved and come to terms with how how do you see sort of that the, the tension of those kinds of ideas playing out either in contemporary history or in other periods well I'd certainly I, I wouldn't use the language of original sin myself but I can see why people would argue this I mean the issue of slavery and and the the, the, the race problems which you know, in considerable part, emerged from it. Um, obviously, is a, 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 a kind of as the abolitionists understood, it was an incredible blot upon any idea of the United States as this shining democracy. Uh, how could you possibly argue that the United States was, as you know, Lipset did, was such a such a you know wonderful democratic country if they, you know, if they uh, uh, you know not only 
allowed slavery, but slavery was actually kind of uh, embedded in the Constitution and it was, you know, defended to the death. Um, now, from Lipset's point of view, this was a this was a uh, a blot on the American character, which had to be overcome. And in fact, Lipset, like Tocqueville, long before him, saw the race issue as being the one that the United States really had to come to terms with if it was ever going to achieve its noble goals. But the the you know the psychological, I suppose, it is uh, 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 value of that approach to looking at the topic as, you know, it's, it's a sin that we have to overcome and it's, it's a, a, a kind of a single aberration is that everything else about the United States is okay. It's that one fundamental or original sin. I mean, I would personally argue that, um, that the, the, the seizing of land from indigenous people was in many, well, it, it was in many ways an equal sin because it involved taking people's land in a in a in a world in which land was their spiritual and cultural essence. To take the land away from people was to destroy them or to attempt to destroy them as a culture. And so, for me, uh, from the very beginning, there is an original sin, and it, and it's actually the uh, seizure of land. But of course, it's a sin which is. Um, Held also, but was committed also by uh, you know other European peoples. It was by no means a purely American uh, you know uh, aberration, as it was, as it were. Um, this is why you know the comparative history of slavery is so very important, and we can see just where the United States fits into that. But if we start to think it in just in purely American terms as as an aberration from from this noble purpose, we're just not we're just not getting where the United States is and was within, the, within the, the contours of world history. So let, let's jump far forward now um, and and talk a little bit about, we've, we've talked about Winthrop and the city on the hill. Let's talk a little bit about Reagan and what he calls the shining city on a hill. And then maybe if you would, as we work our way toward concluding, lead us from Reagan up into how you think about the Trump era. Um. Well, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan was obviously a, Tremendous communicator, and uh, he had a, an ability to touch people. I think through his voice as much as anything else. He was a, as you know, he was a, originally a radio broadcaster, um, but and as before, he was a, a film star. Uh, but um, but he he took. We know that this idea of the city on a hill uh, was just not a very prominent idea. Uh, you know, even within American exceptionalism, which, as I've kind of implied before, was being led in the 1950s by a kind of a social science project to work out what were the empirical differences between the United States and presumably all other countries. And that, of course, was something which is uh, problematic in itself, as I've in indicated before. But this idea of the city on a hill actually um, came partly from the work uh, that Perry Miller, the Harvard intellectual historian, did in sort of resurrecting the uh, the study of the, the Puritans and the and the discovery of the, the intricacies of their arguments, and uh, he uh, kind of laid the groundwork for. He didn't do this deliberately. He was not a, you know, he was not a kind of a a present centered historian really. But he laid the ground the groundwork for the taking up of this idea. First of all, by um, people around John F. Kennedy, and it was Kennedy who used this idea in a speech before the Massachusetts General Court in 1960, just before he entered the White House. So it was being put forward there as a very noble idea of the ambition of the United States to be the city on the hill. 
And it, from, from there, it passed through a variety of political sources on, on to Ronald Reagan. So the idea started out, if you want to put it this way, I mean, it, be, it had been a democratic political idea. It was an idea of John Kennedy's to take this idea of the, of the historian uh, Perry Miller via um, Kennedy's advisors and speechwriters into uh, into a serious place within a conversation about what what the direction of and the moral compass of the United States was in the Cold War. Uh, when Reagan came along, he sort of dumbed that down into the shining city on a hill, which of course hasn't doesn't have a basis in the in the John Winthrop speech. John Winthrop wasn't thinking about how great the United States was, and the sort of fuzzy. Um, ideas in in the shining city on a hill idea remind me of uh, Norman Vincent Peale and the sort of uh, the, you know the uh, power of positive thinking and that that had quite a quite an influence on Reagan um, so what Reagan was doing was giving a feel-good version of the old chosen nation idea no longer was it associated with the Jeremiah where you know if you didn't watch out you were going to fall uh, and you know fall away from God's purpose. And uh, and it was it was something in which the United States was self evidently uh, exceptional. Uh, Reagan didn't use the term exceptional because it was still a largely academic term. It wasn't really until after his time that that it became uh, a, a major term to describe this. Um, f- from 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 Reagan, we of course we get the uh, the downfall of um, the Soviet Union and the. You know, the, the, the idea that the United States had won the Cold War and that a unipolar world had developed after that in which the United States stood alone. And this really encouraged American exceptionalist thought. It encouraged it because as long as the Soviet Union was there as a kind of powerful adversary, the United States um, always had in the back of their mind that there was another country which also had a messianic idea for the future of the world. And which was was you know attempting to modernize at that time and was a competitor in much of the underdeveloped world for influence. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, then that was gone, and the United States was clearly number one. And um, from that point on, the idea kind of solidified. The idea of American exceptionalism kind of solidified, and that that's actually when when my own work came in. But I wasn't really thinking about that at all when I was writing on the, when I was thinking about the topic in the 1980s. I didn't. I wasn't aware of the, the possible downfall of the Soviet Union, for example. And I was in the background of, of this issue in the, as far academically in the, in the 1990s. I didn't take it on as a research project then. What did happen, of course, was that in the 1990s, the United States became called the, the indispensable nation. That was a, a phrase used by uh, Madeleine Albright. Now, she didn't invent that phrase. It, uh, uh, can trace it back um, to Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. But the way she elaborated on it did suggest very strongly a very strong view in America, of American exceptionalism. She said the United States could, could see further than other countries. So that, that the impression is given that, that, that the United States had a special vision that it was above the rest. It wasn't. It was the. It could see into the future. That it was. It was embodying the idea of, of American exceptionalism as beyond history, as outside of history, that's outside of normal history. Because under the chosenness doctrine, the United States is is outside of that normal path of history. It's it's a it's chosen by God. It's following God's path rather than 
following the path of interactions with with other nations. And and when uh, when when Bush came in, he began to use the chosenness uh, chosenness idea more than in the past. And um, but it still didn't catch on really until until uh, the time of um, to call it American exceptionalism until the time of uh, Barack Obama. Now, Trump, Trump uh, is it was an interesting uh, it, it does you know put an interesting new light on exceptionalism that. Uh, in my opinion, Trump was not dumb. Trump is not dumb. That's just my personal opinion. I don't think he's a dumb guy at all. Um, I think he, he immediately saw that American exceptionalism was being used as a kind of a rhetoric, a rhetoric of national patriotism at a time when American uh, soldiers were dying abroad and uh, when American influence in the, uh, abroad seemed to be declining. Uh, during the time of George W. Bush and thereafter. Uh, so he, uh, you know, Trump was asked, you know, well, what do you think about American exceptionalism? And of course, he said, I, I don't, like the, don't like the idea. I don't like the term. So the, and that was the kind of sort of radical uh, um, twist that Trump was able to put upon things at times that galvanize uh, discussion. And, um, you know, he was asked... Uh, but, you know, why are you saddling up to Russia? Uh, you know, Putin's a, a killer. He's an evil guy. He's a killer. And, of course, uh, Trump said, don't you think we've got killers? Trump was pointing out that the, the United States had been involved in a lot of uh, uh, untoward things during the Iraq War, but also much earlier in the Cold War. And the United States was not, you know, free of sin, as it were. Um, so Trump sort of touched a nerve with that. Uh, but behind him, the Republican Party still remained exceptional. What Trump said was that America was great. He said he wanted to restore America's greatness. He wanted to make America great again. Now, that idea actually was an idea that was first used by, as far as we know, by uh, Ronald Reagan. And Trump used it without an acknowledgement. But Trump took that to be his, his campaign, which was about greatness. And I would argue that exceptionalism is not about greatness because greatness is a quantitative standard. The United States has the greatest army in the world, but that doesn't make it exceptional. Exceptionalism has to revolve around ideas of is the United States a special nation chosen in some way to effect the cause of republicanism and democracy around the world. And and Trump uh, clearly wasn't talking about that. He was talking about, about repairing the damage that this unipolar world and the foreign policy vision of it within the United States was bringing to the to the American people as he saw it. Now, to my point of view, from my point of view, he's a pretty strange person for, to be put up as the as the cheerleader or the, the leader, you know, the spear thrower for the for the opponents of this uh, new world order. But he it, he did strike a chord and. That's where his critique of American exceptionalism came from. But surrounding him, American exceptionalism just wasn't really budging. Uh, the, uh, the idea of American exceptionalism remained pretty, pretty much rock solid within the Republican Party. This is the New Books Network, and you've been listening to Ian Tyrrell talk about his new book, American Exceptionalism, A New History of an Old Idea, uh, from the University of Chicago Press. Ian, thank you so very much for talking with us today. Thank you, Stephen. It's my pleasure.